You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good afternoon, Northway family. Good to see you. Happy Mother's Day to any moms that are in the room with us here. Grateful for you. And uh, I'm going to tell you right up front, if you are new to Northway, uh, then I want you to know this is not going to be your traditional Mother's Day message here today. Here at Northway, we love teaching the Bible. We do it book by book. Oftentimes, you rotate between Old Testament, New Testament, verse by verse. And so even when it comes to cultural holidays, most times here at Northway, we're just going to preach where we land in the series. But what that means is sometimes the texts are interesting when it's on the backdrop of something like Mother's Day. For example, last year when Mother's Day hit, we were teaching through a theology of suffering series. So nothing says Mother's Day like suffering. And then even a couple of years ago, I found myself on Mother's Day teaching 2 Thessalonians 2, which is all about the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist. So put that in your Mother's Day brunch. Uh, Today, we are in Romans. We'll be at the end of Romans chapter 10, into the first part of Romans 11, and we are going to be looking at Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so happy Mother's Day. I'd love for you to turn with me, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 10. And as we continue to make our way through this series, I mean, the main idea of, of the book of Romans, this letter of Romans, is the idea that God, our God, is in the business of rescuing and redeeming a, a people of his own choosing, a new humanity, a new family, a people who were formerly marred by sin, alienated from God, and yet through God's merciful provision, he takes both Jew and Gentile, brings them together as one and uh, to establish this new family, this new humanity. And in doing so, what we've seen in Romans is that God has already done all the hard work to make this happen to a people who could not choose God if they wanted to because of the effects of sin in our life. God did all the hard work by one choosing us from eternity past at the right time, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the full embodiment of his righteousness here on earth, to substitute himself for us on a cross whereby he would take the justice, the wrath of God, and take it off of us and onto him, and then by faith in him, take his righteousness, which we couldn't earn or deserve, and credit it to our accounts when we trust in him, and now allows us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the movement of the church in the world, to go out and share the message of Christ and see more men and women, more Jews and Gentiles brought into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And where we left off last week, towards the middle of chapter 10, is the idea that that message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is now made available because of Christ's work. That access is available. The message has been declared to the ends of the earth. But what we saw is that in order for somebody to believe in Jesus for salvation, there are some things that are assumed in that. In order to believe, it's assumed that that gospel has been heard so that you can believe in it, put your trust in it. But in order to hear the gospel, it's assumed that there is a message that was preached to you by which you heard that gospel and then put your trust in it. But in order for a message to be preached, it's assumed that there is a people who have been sent out with that message. And that is us, Christ's church, the very recipients of his grace become the messengers of that grace. But starting in verse 16 of chapter 10, 
Paul, as a Jewish man in the first century who has put his trust and faith in Jesus Christ, makes an observation that has been hinted at for the last couple of chapters. And you see it there in verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Meaning, in light of a message of good news that has gone out to the earth by which God will save and redeem Jew and Gentile, Paul says they have not all obeyed the gospel. They haven't received it. And the they that's used there in verse 16 is specifically referring to his Jewish kinsmen, his brothers and sisters of Jewish ethnicity who, who have been recipients of this gospel in the first place. The, when you think about the Jewish people, Israel, were the first group on the face of this earth whom originally God chose to reveal and for them to receive his covenantal love and promise of salvation. It started with Abraham, God choosing a man named Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, plucking him out, making promises to him that through him, God was gonna bless the nations. This is a man who was in his old age, who had no children, his wife was barren, they had infertility, they're battling that, and yet God promises that he's gonna make a great nation out of Israel. Multiple descendants are gonna come that outnumber the sands on the seashore, and through that, one of them is going to be the Messiah in whom the whole earth will be blessed. And from that point on, God does just that, miraculously gives them a child. And then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, going on down the line, his sons, and then a whole nation that has received the law of God, received the prophecies of God, received land and the temple where the very presence of God would dwell, and ultimately the Messiah Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all of that, who came, lived, and then died on that cross and rose from the grave. And now some 25 years after Jesus has come and has ascended, Paul writes this letter, and, and Paul's readers, Paul anticipates his readers are looking around and going, where are all my Jewish brothers and sisters at? Why, why are they not believing in Jesus Christ? Why, when you survey the land of, of Israel, the vast majority of either true ethnic Jews, even cultural Jews who would claim, will not claim Jesus Christ as their Messiah. He was a good man, he was a good teacher, but he was not the Son of God. He was not the Messiah or not trusting in him for salvation. Why would the one group whom God first chose to reveal all of this be the very group that rejects it? outright. And so what Paul is going to do here at the end of 10 and beginning in chapter 11 is he's going to be, begin providing a defense concerning their rejection of Jesus Christ. And he's going to take the exact formula that we saw last week of how a person gets saved, believing, hearing, being preached to, and somebody being sent with that message. He's going to apply it to Israel as to why the vast majority have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And what I wanna do is I just wanna teach this text, I wanna explain this text in its entirety, and then I wanna not only just discern what God is doing in and through Israel at this point in time in history, but I want us to see the relevance of this text even in our own day and age when there is a mass rejection of Jesus Christ. And ask the question, what is God up to? Is God done with the people that he made these promises to? 
And so we're going to look at this here. First, concerning why is it most of Paul's kinsmen, and even most Jews today, would reject Jesus as the Messiah? Paul says it's actually nothing new in verse 16. This rejection of Jesus actually started 700 years before Jesus even came. He says in verse 16, and he quotes Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Now that's a quote from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the most explicit text in your Old Testament that prophesied the Messiah who would come and die on a cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. It's the most explicit prophecy, the most explicit text is Isaiah 53. And yet, do you know how Isaiah 53 begins? Isaiah says, concerning this message about this Messiah who will come and die on the cross for us, there is actually very little belief in it in our day. This is Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus says, there was a smallness of belief when it came to the message of the Messiah preached to Israel. Very few people were believing it then. And then that disbelief has continued on even into our day today. Why? Why is there disbelief over this Messiah? Why was it then and why today? Now, we've already actually seen the answer to this. It's in verse three of chapter 10, the fact that there is a group of people who would rather trust in their own works of righteousness than actually trust in the provided and substituted righteousness that has been given by Jesus Christ. They would rather hold on to our own works than trust in the work of Jesus. And Paul reminds us in verse 17 Where does saving faith come from? Does it come from the law? Does it come from obeying the Ten Commandments? Is that how you're made right with God? Paul says, no, not at all. He says in verse 17, true saving faith comes by hearing, by putting your trust in the message of a substituted Savior who has given you his righteousness through his death and resurrection. And so naturally, in verse 18, what Paul's going to do is going to field a series of questions, rhetorical questions about why is Israel rejected. And so the first question is is this. I mean, surely Israel's rejection is because they never heard the gospel. That's got to be why. They just didn't hear the real news. And Paul says, oh, no, they heard it. Psalm 19 declares it. He quotes it here in verse 18. 18, when he says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, again, that is a quote from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is historically known as the great Psalm of the cosmological argument. That just simply means this, the cosmos, the creation around us is telling us a story about who our God is and how he wants to be known and how he wants to know us. The, the, the truth is, is Psalm 19 communicates that all people on earth have a general knowledge about God because the creation that God has made is telling the story about the creator so that we can know him. Same as we saw in Romans chapter one. And what Paul does is he takes that verse and he applies it here in chapter 10 concerning Israel's hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying emphatically, oh no, they've heard. The message has gone forth and they've heard it. 
Verse 19, well, okay, if they've heard the gospel, maybe the reason they're rejecting it is because they really haven't understood the full implications of the gospel. They just didn't understand what it was they heard of a savior who would come and who would actually redeem both Jew and Gentile by faith through grace and make them one in Christ. They just didn't understand the implications of that. And Paul says, no, not at all. They did understand. Moses told them so prophetically in Deuteronomy 32, and he quotes that here in verse 19. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In essence, that was a prophecy that Israel would so decisively reject the claims of the Messiah that God would set them aside for a period of time and would go redeem their very enemies, would go take a bunch of Gentiles, and he calls them a a foolish nation or other translation, a stupid people I will use and I'll use them to make you jealous by saving them that would lead you to repentance and back to me. In context, who's the foolish people? Who's the stupid people? Just look around here. Get downwind of ourselves for a little bit. It's us, Gentiles, right here. And God so loves his people that he's gonna save and he's gonna graft in and he's showing them this new family that he's creating. And so they knew. And in verse 20, Paul uses Isaiah 65 to back it up even further. Isaiah wrote, I have... This is God speaking. I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. In other words, I came for you, Israel. I came for you, but you did not want me. John 1.11 says, he came for his own, but his own would not receive him. I wanted you and you rejected me. So I'm going to grab a bunch of Gentiles here. I'm gonna save them. And my hope is that you will see my love for them that is just really my love for you and you would repent and turn and turn to Jesus Christ. But they have not. So in verse 21, the reason is because they haven't heard. No, they've heard. Oh, the reason is maybe they just didn't understand. No, they understood. And so in verse 21, okay, so maybe the problem's not them and their rejection. Maybe the problem's with God. Maybe God just hasn't been patient enough. If he just waited a little longer, then then the Jews would have turned to him. But in verse 21, he says, no, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. In other words, over and over, I have extended grace upon grace to you but in your stubbornness, you have rejected me at every turn. And so when you look at Israel today, and by the way, this isn't just the basis of rejection for just Israel. This would apply to anyone who would turn away from Jesus Christ. But Paul has in mind his fellow kinsmen. And when you look at Israel then, you look at Israel today, why is it you don't see masses of Israelites putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And not just ethnic Israel, just go down even cultural Israel. Go down to some of the temple shaloms around the corner around here. Why don't we see more and more coming together to worship the Messiah that was first promised to them? Why is there this rejection? Is it because they haven't heard the truth? No, they heard it. Is it because they didn't understand it? No, they didn't understand it. Is it because God wasn't patient? No, God has been more than patient. 
The answer is because they simply would not believe. They would not believe. The fact is, you will not want to put your trust in Jesus when you feel like you already have the righteousness you need. You won't want to cling to Jesus when you're too busy clinging to yourself. And the reason they have not put their faith in Jesus is because they are looking for their own righteousness from within, which is no righteousness at all. And so in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul's going to ask a question here that any student of the Bible living in a day of mass rejection of Jesus Christ will naturally ask. And that is, is God done? In this context, is God done with Israel? Because they've rejected him as Messiah, is he done with them? Is is the game over? Is there, there no hope at this point for Jewish people to turn to Jesus and find true salvation Or is God just done with them completely? And Paul says, by no means is God done. In verse one, he says, case in point, just look at me. The apostle Paul, Paul was as Jewish as they come. He said, I was an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Man, I'm as Jewish as a Hebrew national hot dog gets. I'm Jewish as a kosher pickle right here. You don't get more Jewish than this right here. And if you know Paul's testimony, he was zealous in his hatred of the church, zealous in his opposition of Jesus Christ. He persecuted the church. He had men and women, followers of Christ, arrested and killed. And yet God stepped down in time on that Damascus road and showed his grace to Paul and intervened and overrode his own rejection and rebellion and melted his heart and drew him into faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, as you read the New Testament, never gets over the mercy of God, never gets over God's grace, that God would choose somebody like him to save and redeem after all he had done. And by the way, that is good news for you and I. If God can save somebody like Paul, he can save you and I no matter where we've been. Paul never gets over that mercy. And so no, God is not done saving Jewish people yet because he saved me and he saves others. And even today, I've got friends of mine who are Jewish brothers and sisters who have put their faith in Jesus. We have members in this church who are true blue Jewish and yet have put their faith in Jesus Christ. God has opened their eyes and their heart to believe and to see the truth of Jesus Christ and has saved them. We'd say again, they're not converted people, they're completed because they have put their faith in what was first promised to them. And we see in verse two, that's why Paul says, at the end of the day, God is not done here. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And that is important. Because what Paul is saying there is that God has had a plan from eternity past to save a people of his own choosing, both Jew and Gentile, a people not saved simply by their ethnic lineage or the works of the law, but a people of his own choosing who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is living proof that God's predetermined plan cannot be thwarted even amidst mass rejection in his day. In fact, Paul's gonna show that in every season of mass rejection of Jesus in any culture, but specifically in Israel's past here, it has never caught God off guard. God has never caught off guard. 
He always has a remnant. Even when it seems like everybody has fallen away from the faith, God always has a remnant that he will preserve to testify to his ability to save, his grace to save. And he says, case in point, verse two, take Elijah, for example. We go back to a story here of Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. When he said, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. I don't know if you remember or familiar with this story in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, Elijah is going to battle against a wicked king named Ahab. And it's a matter of whose God is the true God. And Ahab, who's rebelled against God, fallen away from his true faith in God, he goes and grabs 850 false prophets of Baal. And they're gonna go against Elijah and his one God, the God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And they build um, an altar with a sacrifice on it. And they're gonna now ask each camp, you call upon your God to, to bring down fire on this and let's see who the true God is. And so uh, Elijah being a gentleman says, all right, why don't you go first? 850 prophets of Baal. And so what they do is they spend all day praying to Baal that fire would come down and consume this. And if you know the story, all day passes, the fire never comes. They keep praying, they keep praying and there's no fire. And remember, Elijah even punks him a little bit and says, hey, where's, where's your God at right now? Is he, is he in the bathroom right now? Maybe he's on the potty right now. Maybe that's why he can't come right now. And so when the day's done, now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah comes up and he gets on his face and he prays to the covenant-keeping Yahweh God. And God sends down fire from heaven. And remember, Elijah just double downs on it. He goes, you know, not only am I gonna call on this, I'm actually gonna douse this whole altar in water to show you how powerful my God is. And this fire comes down and it torches the whole thing and even melts the rocks. Now you think Elijah would be feeling pretty confident right then. My God's, my God's flexing, my God just did a thing right now. And uh, I'm pretty confident in that right now. You think, you think this would be a very high moment for Elijah to brag on his God. But remember, right after this happens, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, comes along and starts threatening to take Elijah's life. And you see his frailty. He goes from this high moment to where just like you and I, like sheep prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, he takes off and runs in fear. And he runs and he runs and he runs for days until he ends up in a cave all alone by himself. And he just throws this big old pity party in which he says these words right here, Lord, they have killed your prophets They've demolished your altars. I'm the only one left. He's like, God, there's nobody faithful to you but me. I'm the only gift you have left. It's just me. You ever had those moments, by the way, when you just feel like everybody's abandoning ship around you in one way or another, and you're just sitting there going, Lord, am I the only one left? 2020 has felt that way, hasn't it? There are days when you just get done scrolling through a social media feed, and you're like, Lord, it's weird out here. Like, am I the only one left? Am I the only one insane right, insane right now? Like, there are those moments, and this is Elijah right here, but yet remember what God says to Elijah in verse four. He goes, really, Elijah? You really think you're the only one who's faithful to me? You're the only one I've got left? Yes, they're all leaving. 
oh, Elijah, I've got 7,000 right now that will not bow the knee to Baal. 7,000 who are faithful to me. You just can't see them. You can only see what's right in front of you, and all you see is rejection right now. But the truth is, scattered all across this region, I'm saving and redeeming a people for myself. That has not stopped. And even though it's not in mass droves right now, I've always got a remnant, 7,000 who will not compromise. And I will use this 7,000 to bring about a harvest of repentance in the days to come. And this is a beautiful story here. And Paul takes that story and he applies it in verse five to Israel's present condition. When it seems like every Israelite is rejecting Jesus Christ, Paul says, so too, at this present time, there is a remnant. There is a remnant, and that remnant is chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. There are people walking away from me because they don't want to receive my grace. They want to do this thing by their own works, which is no salvation at all. And because they don't like that, they are rejecting me. But the truth is, is I've got a remnant right now. There are men and women. Again, friends of mine, members of this church who I know have put their faith in Jesus Christ. God is still saving today Jews all across the world. Even though you can't see in mass drove, he's always got a remnant. And so in verses 7 through 10, Paul summarizes exactly why it is Israel's rejecting Jesus today. He says in verse seven, here's the conclusion, what then? It's that Israel has failed to obtain what it was seeking, but the elect, God's chosen by grace, they've received it, they've attained it, and the rest are hardened. Now you gotta ask the question, what was Israel seeking? Israel failed to obtain what it was they are seeking. And the answer, again, is earlier in chapter 10, verse 3. Listen to these words. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The reason Israel has rejected is because they will not accept salvation on the basis of grace. They feel they have to earn it. And when you feel you have to earn it, then Jesus is of no use to you. And so they have rejected Christ. Their hearts have been hardened over. And Paul explains, by the way, at the very end of this text, what that hardening looks like in Israel today when they have rejected Jesus. He says in verse eight, as it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 29, God has given them a spirit of stupor, Stupor is sleep, sleepiness. It's like many of you when I'm preaching on most Sundays. It's just, just sleepiness, right? And with that comes eyes that just can't see. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3 that even to this day there is a veil over Israel. So they cannot see. They are blind to the truths that are right in front of them. And he says, and not only that, they have ears, but, but they cannot hear. They are deaf to the voice of God. 
And so, so there is a desensitized um, nature going on with, within Israel that makes them desensitized to any outside influences right now. They are asleep, blind, and deaf when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, David says in Psalm 69, there in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap for them, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. See, Psalm 69 is uh, like Psalm 53 or Isaiah 53. Psalm 69 is one of the most depicted psalms um, of the atonement. And in that psalm, it is said of Israel that when, when the Messiah needed food, they gave him gall. That was a prophecy of what would happen on the cross. Here's the Messiah, and you should have set up a banquet table for him when he came. But instead, as he's hanging on a cross, you give him bitterness and gall. And what David said is David said in that psalm, then let that table that they've set up of rejection actually become their own table of rejection. You have rejected the Messiah, you will be rejected by that Messiah. And so there's a sense of the rejection that is seen even to this day. And he continues in Psalm 69 there in verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The idea of darkened eyes and bent over backs, that's the imagery of old age. This is an old, weakened, beaten up people. This is the people, by the way, that in their faith, God flexed when they took out the Canaanites. They walked around Jericho seven times, blew a trumpet, and the walls fall down. And now they're their image is a people who, because of the rejection of Messiah, will spend the next millennia walking blind, deaf, bent over, beat down, and asleep. But the question is, is God done? Is God done with them? No. Remember, verse 7 says, there is an elect few whom God has chosen as a remnant. God was never obligated to save a person because of their ethnic lineage. Just because you are born a Jew or just because you were born into a family that professes Christ or just because you were born going, you know, grew up going to church, those things aren't the prerequisites for salvation. It has always been on the basis of believing a message of Jesus Christ. And so God has an elect few who are of his choice saved by grace, who to this day, even amidst mass rejection, are still holding fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see in a couple weeks here, when we get to the end of chapter 11, God is gonna use this small remnant to bring in a harvest, a harvest of repentance in the end days. So what do we do with this text, all right? Let's stop, that's, that's the text for today. What? are we to make of this? I mean, yes, in one sense, it's a greater awareness of what is going on with Israel and the need to continue to intercede and pray that, that those whom the gospel first came to would respond, have their hearts melted and turn to Jesus. But I think even to us today, there is plenty that this speaks to our context here, even in our country and our nation as well. 
Because I don't know if you're paying attention a lot right now, but there is an incredible rejection of Jesus Christ going on in our country today, going on in our churches today. Men and women and denominations that once boldly professed faith in Jesus Christ are turning away from Jesus in droves. Uh, the Pew Report, which has been doing a Pew, it's a research group that's been surveying for years, just came out a few weeks ago. For the first time in U.S. history, the number of people in America that profess faith in Jesus Christ just dropped below 50% into the minority of our country. It's the first time in the history of professing believers. There is an absolute deconstruction of the Christian faith going on all around us. Entire denominations who are trying to change what the Bible says is true in order to accommodate the cultural winds of our day. See, when it was popular in the culture to uphold Jesus, then a lot more people are in on it. Doesn't mean they're believers, but they're certainly in on it, willing to accept the, the church clothes. But the moment everything tips and it's not popular anymore, then you start finding out who's who real quick. And the people who once professed Jesus but never put their faith in Jesus start walking away from Jesus and walking away from his church and are dismantling everything with it, changing views on sexuality, on marriage, changing views on gender, human dignity, who God is as a triune God, rejecting these truths over and over and over again. We have cities right now who are throwing parades to celebrate the very sins that Jesus came to die for. In the last few years, and I know this is, this is something that's always happened, but I'm telling you, in my lifetime, in the last couple years, I've seen more notable pastors and authors whom both you and I maybe have grown up reading or have been influenced by or listened to podcasts of who are so bold in the faith of Jesus Christ and have now walked away from it altogether, rejecting the claims of Christ. The Bible has a term for all of this. It is called apostasy. It is when somebody who once professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and claimed that this word of God was sufficient, inerrant, and true, then at some point walks out the door and says, I reject it all. It's called apostasy. And this apostasy is not something that's new to us. It was actually predicted by the Apostle Paul and by Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and he wrote these words. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, I want you to pay attention to that because when you're sifting through your social media timeline and you, whether it's the algorithms that have been pre-chosen for you or your own interests, and you have men and women on there who are rejecting Jesus saying, I used to be a Christian, but it's not trustworthy. You need to walk away too, dismantling the Bible. That is not just secondary alternative opinions of the faith. That is demonic influence, seeking to deceive a generation and lead them away from Jesus Christ. And he says 
There is going to come a time when people are going to depart from faithful teaching, truth of the word, and give way to the teaching of the demonic through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, and then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another. For many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, listen to that phrase, because lawlessness will be increased. That's what's going on today. When you begin unhooking and untethering from the law of God that is binding and and eternal and say it no longer applies, whenever that lawlessness begins to increase now, he says, you're gonna see with it, the love of many grow cold. In other words, mass rejection of Jesus Christ not only can happen in a generation, it is predicted it will happen. And when it does, and here's the, here's the by the way, happy Mother's Day. You're like, this is the worst message I've ever heard. But no, it gets better. Listen, I think the challenge for us is when it is, when this is going on in a culture, when you're watching your heroes of the faith walk away from the faith they once held to, when you're seeing churches on different street corners begin to raise up the rainbow flags or begin to identify with things that are contrary to what the scriptures say, when you begin to see that happen as a Christian who's trying to stay faithful to the word of God and be held by his grace, it is very easy to feel in that moment as if the sky is falling, like I am Elijah of old. They're all gone except me. And God, are you done? Is this, this what it is? But I want you to understand this, in God's sovereignty, in seasons and cycles of rejection, he allows apostasy and he allows rejection in mass waves to serve as a pruning for his church. Oftentimes in cultures such as America and especially here in the Southern Bible Belt, it can become confusing at times, even within the church to tell who's who. Um. In Paul's day, if you were to look out at a field into a wheat field, it would be hard to discern between wheat and tares. They look a lot alike. Wheat, uh, wheat and weeds look a lot alike. If you were to look out in a shepherd's field and see a, a herd of sheep and goats kind of mingling together, it would be real hard to discern which ones are which from a certain vantage point unless you got up close. In our day and age, it can be hard for a non-Christian who sees one pastor in one church on one street corner standing up and saying, we need to turn away from these specific sins and repent from them. And yet another pastor in another church right across the street standing up and saying, those very sins you need to learn to tolerate and embrace. And to a non-Christian looking, it's hard to know who's who. And oftentimes in cultures like ours, these 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 integration here kind of springs up and it can be very confusing. It is very confusing right now to know which way is up on a lot of issues in our culture right now. It is very confusing. But the good news is God knows who are his. God knows who are his. And in his mercy, he will allow a falling away from those who are never really his to begin with. They were just going through the motions. And he will allow that to happen so that this church can get pruned down so that 
in a pruned remnant, now we've got room for another generation of a harvest to come. It's the same way in agricultural terms. Whenever you see fruit trees growing, we harvest those trees and then they prune them down and they look tiny and look like it's nothing left, but that is so more fruit can grow. And God is faithful to do that. Let me tell you something, um, just from my own story of a season that I experienced this in like none other. When I was in college, I pledged a fraternity, Sigma Nu, and uh, at the University of North Texas. And I was a baby Christian, had no idea what I was getting to. It was predetermined I was gonna be in this thing because my stepfather was in UNT Sigma Nu. My oldest brother was in UNT Sigma Nu. My middle brother was in UNT Sigma Nu. So I was just sovereign election. I'm going to UNT, gonna be Sigma Nu. And so I get up there and I'm in there and I realize very quick, this is not really the bastion of Christian piety and growth and sanctification in the Lord. This is just not a a place full of Christians right now that I can tell. And as a young Christian, instantly I began to engage in compromise. I began to engage in persecution, even when I was vocal in my faith. And it really kind of rocked me for a little bit. I started digging into our our kind of history of this fraternity. And I was fascinated that the fraternity was actually founded at the Virginia Military Institute by three Christian men who wanted to form a a brotherhood tethered to Jesus Christ and that was in uh, protest to hazing that was taking place at the Virginia Military Institute. And it was just irony for me that fast forward decades later, I'm in this fraternity where I can't find three Christian men anywhere and the whole thing is bent on hazing. And so I was the pledge class president. I had 32 pledge brothers that were with me that were coming through this fraternity. And as we were pledging, anytime one of my pledge brothers did something wrong, I would have retribution for it. I was the one who would get in trouble. And so certainly one night some stuff broke out. I got pulled upstairs into our fraternity house locked in a room with a bunch of other fraternity brothers, and man, they lit into me. It's called a pledge hour, where they're just gonna show me some brotherly love. And they just began to, man, light me up, cussing me out, talking how pathetic I was, just in, I mean, a number of crazy, cruel things in that moment. And that didn't bother me itself, but I really, when that night was over, was very conflicted. Why am I in this thing? And you know what? I went back to my apartment that night and I sat with the Lord and I just, I I felt like Elijah. I was like, Lord, I'm the only one here. I can't do this. Everywhere I see 185 fraternity brothers, like none of them are walking with Jesus right now. And I was bleeding into compromise and just wrestling. And I, I did not hear the audible voice of the Lord, but I can tell you, I heard from the Lord very clearly that night who met with me in prayer. And I had an amazing sense of the Lord telling me, Shay Sumlin, you either need to stand up for me in this fraternity or you need to get out because if you stay in the middle, you're gonna get eaten alive. I said, thank you, Lord, I'm gonna get out. Thank you, I'm gonna just go ahead and head out this deal. But he didn't, he girded me up and said, let's stay in because here's the deal. I have people in here whom I'm going to reach that you just can't see it right now. And let me tell you what he did. That next week, I grabbed a a mentor of mine from Campus Crusade for Christ who wanted to do some Greek ministry through our fraternity. He said, man, let's start a Bible study. So I stood up in front of all my fraternity brothers, invited them to this Bible study. We're gonna walk through together. And that night, nobody came, zero. Nobody showed up at all. So he and I just prayed. 
So we'll give it another week. Invited him again one more week. The next week, one guy showed up, and he showed up only because he had to get some social work hours. He was made to show up for this thing. And so he shows up and just shared the gospel. He's one of my pledge brothers. And y'all, he put his faith in Jesus Christ that night. Like surrendered, like we're talking to this day, Apostle Paul conversion on Damascus Road. Like scales dropped, I see Jesus, I am a sinner, woe is me, I'm repenting of my sin, he has forgiven me at the cross. Yes, I wanna follow him the rest of my days. What's next? To the point that I was, I was like, man, are you serious? Did you really just, do you know, like you actually just believed in Jesus? And it so lit me up. And I'm telling you, I, I've never done drugs myself. I've never been high. That wasn't my bent. I have lots of other bents. That wasn't it. But something was running through my veins in that moment that was so electric. I, 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 it's, it's ultimately, I never got over it. Um, and that guy, by the way, would go on to be a co-pastor with me at the church in California where I was at. I mean, the Lord just grabbed this guy, but that wasn't it. We kept this Bible study going. By the end of the semester, we had 40 guys who were attending this study who were giving their life to Jesus one after the other. I was blowing my mind what the Lord was doing. It wasn't because I had anything to do with it or the other guy that I was with, I wasn't persuasive or slick speech. It was the Holy Spirit just going, now's the time. I've got my remnant, here they come. And then the next semester, we took that Bible study, went Greek-wide at UNT, went around to every fraternity, every sorority, invited them to this Bible study. By the end of the semester, we had 150 men and women who had given their life to Jesus Christ, literally saturating the entire Greek system of UNT. We had, we had presidents of fraternities getting saved and then mandating prayer hours for their fraternity brothers. They need a little work out there, but they were getting that going. There was all kinds of stuff that was happening on this campus for just this window, I got to taste and see what the Lord can do with a small group of faithful people by the power of his spirit when he so ordains it. And I'm telling you, out of that came men and women who went on to serve as doctors and lawyers and school teachers who are using their vocation as a mission field for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are church planters that came out of that. Missionaries came out of that little group. Grammy award-winning songwriters and rappers came out of that group. There was all kinds of movement that the Lord did to redeem these people. And when I look upon that, I would just say to you right now, I don't know where you find yourself in the narrative of our day today amidst a sea of people who are walking away from Jesus and rejecting the faith and trying to dismantle the truths of God. I want you to be of good courage. Your God is not done. There is more work to be done in the city of Dallas. There are more of his elect who are out here whom he's going to save. And even though it seems everybody's walking away, I really believe in the ground of the greatest days of apostasy we're seeing right now in the church, he is preparing a remnant in which he's going to use in the next generation to bring forth a harvest of repentance and souls given to Jesus Christ. And you and I get to be a part of that. The unspeakable privilege of not only tasting of that grace, but being used by God to be the vehicle that goes and administers the gospel of Jesus Christ to the community around us. Oh, church, stay tethered to Jesus. Do not compromise in a day of apostasy. Your God has not forsaken you. Don't forsake him. 
Stay tethered to him. Hold to the rock that is Jesus Christ. Stand on the timeless, eternal truths that weather every generation and every movement of our secular world that will throw at us. Stay faithful to Jesus as he is faithful to you. Heed Paul's words in Galatians 6, 9, which simply say this, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, though this may not have been the uh, expected message of a Mother's Day message, it is the word we need so desperately right now in our culture and in our church. God, I pray for those who are wavering in their faith right now. I pray for those who are being tempted to walk away from the gospel of grace to a gospel that is no good news at all. And Lord, every one of us have doubts. Every one of us in here have struggles. But God, your word, your grace is sufficient for us. So God, would you strengthen us where we are weak? Would you give us great courage and conviction in the truths of your word to stand in a day when so many are falling away? God, would you preserve your remnant? Would you raise up faithful followers of Jesus from your faithful grace to us? That God, you would use that remnant to bring forth a harvest of salvation in the days to come. And we pray this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.